0: Father, we thank you this morning that we can say these things to you. Uh, We can sing these things to you. Uh, Lord, I pray God that they would mean something to us. Lord, we're about to look in the Bible and look at some really difficult, very challenging issues. And it's going to raise up lots of stuff for us. Lots of questions, lots of angst, perhaps in time, places as well. But God, before we do that... We, all of us, Lord, can thank you for something in our lives. And so, Lord, we want to do that right now. Why don't you just think of something that you are grateful to God for? Whether you know, whether you say you follow God or not, whether you have been a Christian for a long time, whether you're just exploring it all, just something you're grateful for in your life. And just thank God for that right now this morning. God, our heart is filled with praises for thee. Lord, I pray as we look at all of the difficult stuff of life that we're going to look at this morning, God, I pray that in and through that, we'll see that there is lots that we can thank you for this morning. And we want to be a grateful, thankful people because you are such an amazing God. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? Why don't you uh, resound and excel if you want to head out? And that would be fantastic. I hope you have a great morning, guys. You're looking at the same stuff that we're looking at. as are are our children in D.C., and if you haven't seen that new floor on the back, you really need to get out and have a look at that. That is absolutely amazing, as Simon said on the uh, video clip. Um, I'm speaking early this morning um, because I've got lots to say, (laughs) but no, no, because we're going to worship at the end, okay, Uh, and sing at the end and respond at the end and take communion at the end, so I'm going to speak a little bit earlier um, on in our service this morning. Um, I want to ask you a question and I want you to think about this, and perhaps then I'm going to ask you to discuss it slightly with the person next to you. But David was a man after God's own heart. That's what we're looking at in this series. In other words, he surrendered himself to God, and God said, you, boy, are a man after my heart, and I'm really glad about that. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. When you have a heart for God, I wonder if you think this is true. When you have a heart for God, everything in life will work out fine. You will never experience difficulty, trouble, disappointment, or defeat. So, with the person next to you, agree or disagree, what do you think? Just just like... Okay, that's too much discussion. Agree or disagree? Okay, number two, number two, because there's more. Number two, when you have a heart for God, whatever you do will succeed. People will always like you and you will never be let down by another human being. Agree, disagree? All right, let's try the third one then. There's one more, there's one more, third one. When you have a heart for God, life will always be fantastic and you will experience many wonderful things and you will never ever experience Pain. Agree or disagree? (laughs) All right. Is disagree the winner here this morning? Okay. All right. So, when David in 1 Samuel 16, in private, is anointed by the prophet Samuel on recommendation of God, on direction of God, to be the king, and so he's called because he has a heart after God, that's all private. So then in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, David then goes public, and as Simon skillfully led us through last week, he faces the giant Goliath, kills the giant Goliath, wins an amazing victory for Israel. So you'd think that after that, David's life is going to be great. I mean, he's a man after God's own heart. God calls him. He's got courage, so he fights Goliath and kills him. You'd think that his life after that would be fantastic. But 1 Samuel 18 says this in verse 6. When the men were returning, were return, let me get my teeth in when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out it's always the women, isn't it? I said that, I said that at the nine o'clock, and literally I felt I was going to get killed lynched. <laughs> I only did it to see if they were awake. You obviously are all asleep. That's great. So the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang this song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. How do you think that went down? Well, the Bible says, Saul was very angry. The refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, David is between 14 and 17 years of age. He doesn't become king fully until the age of 30. So there's between 14 or 13 and 16 years now where you could characterize this period of David's life with one word, pain. He He's a man after God's own heart. He's called, he's got courage, but he experiences years, years of almost nothing but pain and difficulty. And this is quite a heavy subject for me to look at this morning. I always get the heavy ones. But it's really important because I know in my own life, the reality of living with pain, as many of you do, and some of you experience much more pain than I have, and trying to have a heart for God when your heart is full of pain is a tough challenge. But David kind of did it. And it wasn't easy, but I want to open it up with you and show you. There are two areas that I think could summarize the pain that David experienced in his life. The first was the pain of conflict. This king, Saul, is jealous of David. And the root cause of jealousy is what eats away at Saul and what causes the pain of conflict between Saul's house, his family, and David's house, his family, for many, many years. You see, there aren't many heroes who can cope with a new hero. And Saul was the hero in the nation. And David, the young guy, comes up and he's a new hero. And there aren't many heroes that have the grace and the heart to cope with a new hero. And it says in 1 Samuel 18, verse 10 and 11, that an evil spirit came upon Saul. Now, the root word for evil there is not demonic, but it actually means deteriorating. What I want to suggest to you this morning, and this is important for all of us, when you have jealousy in your heart... And all of us do from time to time. When you have jealousy, if you do not deal with the jealousy, it will deteriorate inside your heart. It's like a spirit that deteriorates your heart. It will eat away at you and it will get worse and worse and worse. And that's what happened for Saul. He allowed the spirit of that that jealousy to deteriorate. And him, his frame of mind, his paranoia and everything just took him to incredible depths. And jealousy is a killer For our heart. If we want to have a heart after God, jealousy is a killer. It says in 1 Samuel 18, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. And then over the next 13 to 16 years, there's just conflict all the time, and Saul's trying to kill him, and he's on the run, and he's in the desert, and he's in caves, and he's feigning madness, and he's hiding, and he's he's despairing, all because of the pain of conflict. Now, here's the thing when you go through conflict. It does test and prove the condition of your heart. You see, there was a really interesting uh, occasion in 1 Samuel 24 where David and some of his men were in a cave. Some of you will know the story, some of you won't. And the Bible's really graphic and I love how the Bible says it. It says, Saul went in the cave to relieve himself. You understand what we're talking about here now, don't you? And the interesting thing was, there was David and the men at the back of the cave and there was the king, the focus of all the conflict in this man's life. And the men around David said... There he is. There's the king. God has delivered him into your hands. You could kill him now, and all this pain could go away. How many of you, in that how many of you have ever had conflict with anybody? You think if only I could get them in a cave? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and if only God would say to me, "I have delivered him or her into your hands, and you could kill them, and all the pain would go away right now." Thank you, Jesus. But He didn't say thank you, Jesus. He didn't say that. He said. I'm not going to do that because that's the Lord's anointed. His heart was so in tune with God that even though, even though the escape from the pain of conflict was presented to him on a plate, his heart sensitivity would not let him do it. In fact, he cut a corner of the, of, of the tunic of Saul off while he slept. So Saul knew that David had him in his hands and didn't kill him. And even that caused David's conscience to to get pricked, and he said, I shouldn't have even done that, and he repented to God. I can think about some people in my life, I'm a church leader, so this might be revelation to you, but I've had a bit of conflict with people in my life, and the longer you go, the longer the list just keeps on growing, and I just think, of some people, oh dear God, could I get them in a cave, just for two minutes, and just bless them. And uh, that would be awesome. And, and, if God, and I'll tell you how it works. It works like this, that you're talking to someone and their name comes up and it's like, I've got them. And before you know it, you're speaking bad of them. David didn't do that. Even though the cause of his conflict was in his hands, his heart after God said, I can't do anything, and he let it go. That's an amazing test of the heart of this man. But the second thing that I want to spend most of the time talking about is that David experienced the pain of loss. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think about something you've lost in your life, but not a big thing, not the death of someone close or a job or a marriage or anything big like that. I want you just to think of something little that you've lost, but that at the time caused you a lot of anxiety. It might have been your keys, it might have been a phone, it might have been whatever. And just briefly, with the person next to you, we don't do this very often, so if you're a visitor, please don't get freaked out, okay? But with the person next to you, just describe what happened when you lost something and what were some of the emotions that you were went through as you realised you lost that thing or that person or whatever and you tried to get it or them back. Would you just do that for a minute or two? <laughs> okay, I'm going to just call it to you. You're enjoying yourself far too much and that's not allowed. So uh, just bring it in. When you were, when you were talking about that, what were what some of the emotions that you experienced that you talked about? Anyone want to suggest? Just shout it out. Panic. Panic, Panic you realise you've lost it. What, what else? stress, fear, I think I heard, disappointment. Disappointment. I just wonder how, I mean, for some of you, I don't know how long ago it was, but I wonder, I mean, I did this activity somewhere this week, and, and it's amazing when you think about what you've lost, even if it's a long time ago and you'd forgotten it, when you start thinking about it, it's amazing how it comes back, isn't it? And the emotions and even the sights and the sounds and even smells of where you were, you suddenly think. And I shared this story with somebody when we'd lost Josh, our our eldest son, when he was very little, in a big shock. Well, actually, I lost him when I was, I don't think Alison ever knows this. So here's confession time this morning. (laughs) It was about 15 years ago, darling. I was in Merry Hill and and I lost him, (laughs) basically. I found him again. But that, it was literally a couple of minutes, it seemed like forever seemed like forever. It was just a couple of minutes, and the panic, and the sweat, and the everything. And then when you find him, and the relief that turns to, why did you run off? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And that's the power of loss. In this period of time for David, he lost a lot. There was a loss of position. He was a national hero, and then for 13 to 16 years, he was a fugitive. He lost his partner. His wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, was used by Saul as a pawn in in, in a kind of a jealousy, paranoia thing. And he lost her. He lost relationship with her, never to regain it. He lost his mentor, Samuel, during this period. His go-to person. The person he went to for advice, this spiritual father. He lost him. He died. And then towards the end of this period, he lost his friend, his best friend, Jonathan, the king's son. And I'm aware this morning that in this room, there will be many of us who've lost people really close to us. Parents, kids, husbands, wives. I really am really conscious of that. And I want to say these are real losses and they're really, really difficult for our heart to cope with. And I think I know a little bit in my own life of loss over the last two or three years. And my dad died three years ago and we had to put our youngest son, Simeon, into care. He has severe special needs. And thank you for those of you that are praying for us. And 10 days ago, uh, he transitioned into some new accommodation. And it's a little difficult. We thought he was settling well, and he's not quite settling so well now. And so that's difficult. And so I understand a little bit about loss. And so I want to I thank you for praying for us for that. But, you know, sometimes when we come to think about losing people in our lives and losing things out of our lives... And I want to say this humbly and hopefully pastorally. Sometimes these things that we lose can be crutches that can reveal other things about our life. Now let me say for, right from the, from the outset, we need crutches. You break a leg, you need a crutch. And relationships are not just crutches, but they can become that. And when they're taken away, it can expose the condition of our heart and the level of our relationship with God. You see, subst- crutches can... Become substitutes for God. I can't ever hear that word substitute without thinking of a story from my teenage years. Um, even if a football match, whenever I hear the word substitute, I think about this story, and it's just a bit bizarre. But here we go. So I'm 13 or 14, and I'm in the Salvation Army, which I was brought up in, and um, I was bored out of my brain on a Sunday morning, and uh, I was sitting in the band, you know, the brass band, just just listening to all this stuff go in my head, and I was just totally tuning out. And and this occasion was um, it was a women's weekend. Okay, the whole weekend been a women's weekend, and for me as a 13 to 14 year old, it was old women, I mean they're in their 40s, do you know what I mean, it's like, I know it's tragic now in my 40s as well, but it felt like that at the time, and uh, the woman that was leading the women's weekend was in her 70s, and she was not married, never been married, and uh, she was uh, uh, thanking the speaker for the weekend, and the speaker had stepped in at the last minute, because the, the speaker that invited was ill. And so she was doing this big thing and I was just tuning out, just sitting in the band being bored, just looking around like that. And then I just, I wasn't bored because then the woman said, and and this woman Marjorie, she stepped in at the last minute to replace the other woman who was ill and and I'm sure you'll all agree, you know, stepping at the last minute, hasn't she been, she wanted to say substitute, hasn't she been a wonderful prostitute? (laughs) Now as a 13 or 14 year old boy, that gets my attention, do you know what I mean? And I'm like, no way she said that in church. And the thing is, the woman never knew what she'd said. She just carried on anyway. And we're all, anyway, nothing to do with the talk, all right? But I just have to get that out of my system with the word substitute. So crutches can become substitutes for God. You won't forget that point now. Crutches can can also keep our focus horizontal. Because whenever people are our substitutes, or our crutch, they keep our focus horizontal. You know, our job as Christian leaders and our job as Christians actually is not for people to lean on us, but for people to lean on God. Now, there are moments when they need to do that in order to get to that, but that's not the goal. The goal is that they lean only on God. And they can. we can keep our focus horizontal. Crutches also offer only temporary relief. As important and valuable and significant and godly as those other things and relationships are, What really is important is that our heart is connected to the heart of God. There's an old phrase used centuries ago which says this, Our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. We were designed to connect and to rest and to be secure in our relationship with our heavenly Father. And so crutches can reveal what is going on inside people's heart. And I believe that God, that David's heart was in tune with God through this period. And there were like two ships that kept him afloat through this season. One was a crutch, if you like, and that was important for him. And we need them. Okay, let me get that clear. But then that crutch went away and then he found the other ship. So the first ship I want to talk about is friendship. Friendship is vital if you want to keep your heart in tune with God And David had an incredible friend that God blessed him with just for a short season of his life, and his name was Jonathan. And in 1 Samuel 18, you can read about how they came and connected together. And I want to quickly, because this is a whole talk in itself, just quickly go through some things and then give you five lessons of friendship. What they had in common was they were both warriors. They both suffered rejection from the same man. You see, Jonathan was a prince. He was the son of Saul, but he loved God more than anything else. And he saw God in David, and it connected them together And David was rejected by Saul, but so was Jonathan, and they shared that in common. They also, um, what they shared in common was they both loved God more than anything else. Lesson number one, you all, we all need significant relationships where God is the center. It's great to have friends who don't know God, that's really important, but if you want your heart to stay in tune with God's heart, you need great friends where God is the center. But they also, they they had a lot not in common. There was a lot that they didn't have in common. They were from different tribes. Jonathan was from the tribe of Benjamin. David was from the tribe of Judah. That was a big deal. They had different status, shepherd and prince. They had a different upbringing. Lesson number two. If you want a great friend, be willing to look outside of your circle. Because God might have somebody nothing like you. Nothing like you. Not like you at all. And God might have someone that he wants to bring into your life as a friend. The look outside your circle. What they meant to each other, the cost of friendship to Jonathan. there was the loss of status in the family and in the nation. Lesson number three: competition will eventually kill a friendship. I don't know why it is that often the most competitive people are friends. I don't know why that is. I don't think it's a male thing. I think it's or a female thing. I think it's a both thing. That often in friendships, there can be a sense of competitiveness that comes into the friendships. But can I humbly suggest to you, competition will eventually kill a friendship. And Jonathan could have got competitive with David because, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, I'm the prince here, I'm going to become the king, and now you're anointed and you're in and, and all this. And he could have got competitive, but he didn't. He actually laid that down for the sake of the friendship, which was amazing. And what they gave to each other, Jonathan gave to David, security. He was a friend behind his back. He gave him sight in dark days. David couldn't see the future. If you look between 1 Samuel 20 and 22, incredible stories there. And David's kind of like, your dad's going to kill me, Jonathan. I'm never, it's never going to happen. And Jonathan comes along, and I can, I can see him. As I read the story, I can see him shaking him and saying, you will make it. God has said it. You will make it. He gave him sight when he couldn't see. How many of you know we need that? There's been some times in my life when I just couldn't see the future. I just couldn't see anything. And I've needed friends who've come and they've given me sight when I couldn't see anything. We need that. We need strength. 1 Samuel 23 verse 6. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David and helped him find strength in God. There are some times when we can't do it on our own. We need someone to help us. And this ship of friendship kept David afloat in these early days, in these early months and and years really, after this whole conflict began. Lesson number four, great friends stick with us through the tough times. Lesson number five, great friends love us enough to tell us the truth. Old Jewish proverb says, a friend is one who warns you. My favorite quote on friendship is from Oscar Wilde. It says, a real friend is someone who stabs you in the front. They love you enough to tell you the truth. I hope you've got people like that in your life. If you haven't, get them. Be open. Now can I just say, the David and Jonathan friendship is incredibly intense, incredibly powerful. He only had one and it only lasted a short time. So we're not all going to get loads of these levels of relationship, but there are some things in this which I believe God wants us to have. So I want to say to you this morning about friendship, two things. Firstly, if you've got some great friends like this, value them. I'm going to challenge you, before you leave today, to tell a friend how grateful you are for their friendship. I want you to text them, Facebook them, Twitter, email them. After the service is finished, call them, speak to them. Whatever it is you want to do, but tell them how valuable that friendship is to you and why it's valuable. And secondly, if you don't have these kind of friendships, please be open for them. Please say, God, would you send And here's a thought. You might say, oh, God, please, would you send me a Jonathan, someone who's going to encourage me and strengthen me and help me find strength in God? And that's important. But why don't you also pray, God, you know, instead of like just, God, send me a Jonathan, why don't you say, God, send me a David? Send me someone who I could be a friend to, who I could encourage, who I could strengthen, who I could help find strength in God. Because we all love Jonathans in our life, but how about some Davids, where we're the one who's actually encouraging and strengthening that other person. So there's the ship of friendship, the second ship that kept him afloat. And boy, this was the one when all those of the relationships were out the way and all those other crutches were gone and it was worship. It was just him and God. And I want to talk about that this morning. How do you know if someone is a worshiper of God or not? Is it how high they lift their hands on a Sunday morning, or the angle that they hold their hands, or the intensity of the screwed up face that they have when they're singing certain songs? It's nothing to do with that. And worship, sung worship, when we gather, is really important. But that isn't what I'm talking about this morning. What I'm talking about is our relationship with God. It's us and God connecting together and engaging in that connection. And I want to suggest to you this morning, and this is just quick stuff for me and there's loads more, but there's three things I think are really important for the life of David that reveal the worshipping heart of David through this period in his life. How do you know someone's a worshipper? Number one, by how you respond to pain and loss. By how you respond to pain and loss. You know, the Psalms were mostly written by David, not exclusively, but mostly. And they're kind of real, authentic, like this is how he was feeling, this is what he was going through. And if you look at the top of the Psalms, you often see, uh, written by David, from a cave in the desert, or on the run, or as a fugitive. A lot of the Psalms were written during this period of his life. And when I read them, I don't read David saying, God, thank you for the loss, thank you for the pain, it's so great, hallelujah. I don't hear any of that. What I do hear is a lot of real angst. Bible calls it lament. I do hear David saying, how can this happen? Like, why would you do this, God? Like, you know, I'm just like in despair. I hear a lot of genuine pouring out of heart. That's part of worship. You know that? That's part of connecting with God. God, how could you let this happen? But then what David does is by doing that and by being real and by being genuine and by being authentic, he doesn't stop there. He allows God to take him to a different place. He doesn't stop the pain of all that, but he allows God to take him to a different place where he then can declare things like this in Psalm 27. I'm confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my foes. Psalm 62, he alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. You're a worshipper by how you respond to pain and loss. Not by denying it, not by pretending it doesn't hurt, not by thanking God for it, for the pain, but by seeking God through it. Am I saying, God, I don't understand it, I don't like it, I don't get it, but God, I want to get you. God, I want to know you. And that's what David did. The second way I know that someone's a worshipper is by who or what you turn to when life is tough by who or what you turn to when life is tough. You know, there was a David, there was a David, there was a day when, later on in the story, in 1 Samuel 30, you read that David was now kind of king over his tribe, and there was, there was an army together, he was general, and he was out fighting the Amalekites, and while he was out fighting the Amalekites, they came back around the corner, as it were, and they raided the camp, and they took away all the wives, and the kids, and everything, and so when David and the soldiers came back to the camp, they were miffed with him. Not only was he personally experiencing loss, but they were miffed with him. The Bible says they were so miffed with him that they talked about stoning him. And what did he do? 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 says this, But David found strength in the Lord his God. There was nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, but David found strength in the Lord his God. I want to put a picture up here that I've had a Facebook. When we have nothing left but God, we discover that God is enough. Some of you may read that as trite and as glib and as cliche. I want to tell you from my own life over the last couple of years, it ain't trite or glib or cliche for me. Putting my son into care and going through the pain and the grief of that on an ongoing basis, my dad, all of that, and lots of other stuff as well. And I know that lots of you have experienced more than I have. I know but that's not trite or glib or cliche, if it's real. When we have nothing left but God, we discover that God is enough. But here's the interesting thing about that phrase, David found strength in the Lord is God. When you look at the Hebrew of that, it's actually a reflexive uh, phrase. In other words, it's a reflex action for David to find strength in God. So you remember when you used to go to the doctor, I don't know whether they do it now, but when you check your reflexes and you would cross your leg and they would like, hit you with a hammer nice, you know, on your knee and your leg would shoot. out. You don't think about it. It's reflex. What the Bible says is that David didn't really think about it. It was a reflex action that he found strength in the Lord his God. I want to get to that place, don't you? I'm not there yet. I want to get to that place where it's a reflex action. Tell him I'll call him back. It's a reflex action where I just want to find strength in the Lord my God. just making you feel bad, Ray, just looking at you. That's all right. No, now, now here's the thing about, about reflex action. Can you develop so that it becomes reflex? Some of you who are educationalists will know what I'm going to show you now. Some of you who won't, then you might not, or you might do. But there's a, there's a model of uh, learning and change around the word competence. And the idea, okay, if you can't see that, I don't know whether it's up on the screen, it probably isn't. The idea is that there are four stages that you go through with pretty much anything. The first stage they call unconscious incompetence. All right? Many of you know what that is. We all do. Unconscious incompetence. In other words, I don't know what I don't know. Correct? The next stage is conscious incompetence. I know what I don't know. With me? The next stage to that, though, is conscious competence. I know what I know. I can do it. Where we want to get to is unconscious competence. I don't know what I actually know. Let me give you an example. Driving. When you're a kid, you don't know what you don't know with driving, do you? You just don't know. You look at your dad or your mom driving, you think, oh, it's easy. You don't know what you don't know. And if you're a naughty kid. Okay, You might even have like, tried to get in the car and drive it and it's all gone wrong. I don't know. You might have that story. But then there comes a point when you're 17 and you get L-plates and you think, oh, I can drive now. And all of a sudden, consciously, you are aware that you're incompetent. Anyone remember back to that, that era? Some of you younger people might be still there now. You think, oh, this looks so easy. Like my dad did it. It was so easy. And like the hill start. Remember hill starts? And we, around where we live here, there's just hills everywhere. I can remember doing a hill start. It was like that. My dad getting get and thought, I'm, like, I'm never going to do this. I know that I just don't know how to do this. I'm consciously incompetent. But then there comes a point of time when you pass your test, or hopefully before you pass your test, when you are consciously competent. You can drive. Remember that? And then the old plates go, and then you're 17 or 18 or 19 or whatever, and you're driving. You know what you know, and you are king of the road. My first crash was after four weeks, brand new car, tried to do a three-point turn in a street, and it's terrible, took the front end off, fantastic. I knew what I knew, so I thought. So I don't know what I don't know, I kind of know what I don't know, I know what I know, but when you've been driving for a long time, how you know, it just comes naturally, doesn't it? You are unconsciously competent. You know, you just don't know what you actually know. You don't think about mirror signal maneuver like you did when you were 17. Perhaps we should. You don't think about what does this pedal look. You just do it because it's reflex. And what I want to suggest to you this morning, it is possible for us to get to a point in our relationship with God where we find strength in the Lord our God as a reflex. Where it's like unconsciously, we just do it. Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't know about you, but I would love to be in that place, wouldn't you? And for David, I think it comes because years ago, when he was encountering God on the hillsides with the sheep and the lion and the bear, he was learning what it is to find strength in God. Then Goliath came and he had to go through that. And all these challenges, and and as the losses kept coming, he got to a point where he lost everything. And his reflex response was to go to God. That's what I want in my life, don't you? So reflexively, he goes... To God, I believe it's possible for us to get to a point where we find strength in God. Not because we work really hard. Not because we think, oh yeah, I've tried everything else. Should I try that? But we just reflexively go to God. That's my goal. One of my goals in my spiritual life. To be that in tune. That reflex oriented. That I just go to God and find strength in Him. And the third thing. How I know you're a worshipper is by what you stand on when everything is crumbling around you. You see, David stood on the word of God, on the promise of God, on the calling of God. And even though everything he could look at and see seemed to be in contrary to what God had said, he said, God, I know you love me. I know you're with me. I'm standing on that even though everything else is crumbling around me. And the memory verse, you know that we're taking you through memory verses as well with our kids and our young people. And us as well, and we've done a couple of the last two. Here it is, my heart. Now this was written apparently by a guy called Asaph, although actually a lot of scholars think that this was David. It doesn't matter because this could summarize what I'm saying here. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. To come to a point where you say all the props have gone, all the crutches have gone, all the great important relationships right now seem to have gone, but God, you are the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Why don't we say this verse together? Wouldn't that be good to do that? Why don't we say it together? My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, verse 26. I want to finish this morning by telling you a real story. Not that that, what I've just said, isn't a real story, because it is. But sometimes when you look at these Bible stories and they get locked away in history and in theology, and and I want to tell you a real story that's happening right now. I want to show you a picture of a friend of mine. She's called Eleanor, and her two kids, Gabriel and Sarah. They're from Albania, from the northern part of Albania. Some of you know some of this story. I've said it before. I met Eleanor and her husband, Tani, in 2006. I'd heard a lot about them And uh, when I met them, I was really intrigued to meet them and we met and we talked and we got to be friends and kept in contact with them uh, since then and seen them various times. And and what I was intrigued about was that I'd heard that they were in a period of incredible conflict as a couple. Tani was leading a church in the northern part of Albania, Ellen and his wife, they had two kids. These kids, obviously, Gabriel and Sarah, who were two years younger than they, they are now. And what had happened is that the conflict they went through went a little bit like this. Tani's uncle was a shopkeeper. And on one day, a young guy in his 20s who was drunk came in and they got into an altercation with Tanny's uncle and pulled a gun on him and Tanny's uncle shot him and killed him. And they live in a part of Europe, okay, Europe, which still operates something called the blood feud. It's horrific. And basically, the family of the, of, of the guy who was killed said, right now, we now will re- wreak vengeance and revenge for what your family have done. But because Tani's uncle didn't have any kids, they said, so we're going to find the best male in your family and we're going to kill him. And the best male in the family was Tani, who was a pastor and a father of two. And when I met them in 2006, they'd been living under this conflict for several years. Now, under the blood feud, um, they wouldn't kill you if you were in your home and they wouldn't kill you if you were in a church. So, for years, they had to live like that. And when they came to the conference to listen to us speak, it took them hours because they had to sneak out the house at certain times and drive certain ways to get to us because they were so hungry for the word of God. And I was like, wow. And they went through and lived through the pain of conflict. And then in the summer of 2010, they'd had enough, really. And they were living in England, in Kent. And they had a visa and they were going to stay. And then we're going to settle here, and they we're going to say, look, that's just too difficult. We can't lead the church there. We're under threat all the time. It's just too much conflict. We can't do it. And as they were in this, this uh, conference in the summer of 2010, there were a lot of people there. The prophetic guy was speaking. Right at the end, the prophetic guy points Tanny out and says, I think I've got a word for you. And this is the word that he gave him from Genesis 28, verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until what I have... Until I have done what I have promised you. And then he said, and furthermore, I believe God is saying this, that within two years, you're going to have political influence. That was the summer of 2010. In October, Tani was shot and murdered in cold blood in the day. And I was sitting in a a coffee shop in America. I was at a conference and I got a phone call from a friend of mine in Albania who told me this and I just broke down and thought, no God. We've been praying for him and talking to him for years thinking, no God. And then I met Eleanor and the kids uh, a month ago, six weeks ago, at the end of April, whenever that is. And I haven't seen them since Tani was murdered. And so I had the opportunity to sit down and to connect again with her and to listen to the story. And I'm, what I'm going to tell you this morning is a tiny bit of the story of this amazing, incredible woman of God. And so I said, Eleanor, how do you get your head around hearing that word from God that I'm going to watch over you, so go back to the land. And Tanny's going to get political influence in two years. And then in three months, he's shot and murdered. How do you get over that? And she said, that, well, this is what happened. She said, I knew under the blood feud that they wouldn't kill him if I was with him. So I made sure I was with him every day. The only day I was not with him was the day the man shot him. He said it was his day off. And he went to work at the church. When he went, and popped into the church. His day off. Popped in to get something, and then he walked up the street to get to his car. And the fella, young fellow, who didn't even know him, he was in the family. He didn't even know him. He went up and said, "Are you Dritten prior? He said, "Yes," and shot him. So, then as, as Tanny hit the floor uh, and he crawled and tried to get into a, into a, a, a shop, the guy, young guy, come in and then shot him in the head. And he was so jubilant with what he'd done, he got a gun in the air and he shot all the bullets into the air. An off-duty policeman just over the road in a cafe saw him, came towards him. The man pointed his gun to shoot the policeman and he shot all his bullets so he couldn't shoot him. The man arrested him. In his pocket were passport and tickets he was going to shoot, which he did, and he was going to flee the country. But that didn't happen. And I said, how do you get your head around all of that? How do you get? I mean, I mean, God said. You you, you know, you felt that God said to you that you had political influence within two years. You know what she said? She says, "Well, amazingly, this." She said, "When they arrested the man, they gave him four years in prison for that murder. A government official heard about it and came to visit me, and I told him what had happened. He got the sentence commuted, and the guy's in prison for a long time. But not only that, our denomination of churches don't have any political recognition in the country." but the government official changed it. He said, and I sat there thinking, God said that within two years, you'll have political influence. And as I sat and listened, I thought, how on earth do you get this all sorted in your head? Do you know what I mean? But you see, when you have a heart for God, and now let me tell you some of the pain she's gone through and is going through is real. But when you have a heart for God, you push through what you see and you see a different perspective. And I said to her, you know, how do you get your head around the guilt like you weren't there on that one day, she said. No, that was a big one for me. She says, and in worship, she said, in worship, I was crying out to God, God, why, why, wasn't I with Him on that day? Why did I leave Him all on His own? And she said this, and she says, and God said to me, Eleanor, He wasn't on His own. I was with Him. And then she said this to me, she says, and do you know what? They took Tanny. He was the only Christian man in the family. They could have taken any other men and they would have gone to a Christless eternity. But they took Tani and he's with Jesus now. And actually since his death, several of the men in Tani's family have now come to faith. She says this, Tani was the national uh, coordinator for March for Jesus. And we did march for Jesus in all the big cities, but we never did it in our own city of Skodra. Tani always said, we'll only ever do it when there's something really significant. And she said this to me, on the day of his funeral, there are a thousand people walking behind a coffin and a great big cross through the streets of Skodra to bury Tani. She says, that was the march for Jesus. As I sat there listening to this, I thought, dear God, this is like, I can't even believe this is happening, you know. So here's a woman in her early 30s, and let me tell you, there's been lots and lots of months and weeks, and there will be, of just pain and despair and desolation, but through it all, she's finding a way to keep her heart in tune with God, and to see God, and to seek God, and search for God through all of that. There was one bit she said that she found really difficult, and that was to forgive the family, because up until this point when, when the guy killed him... Their family elders had been to each other and tried to negotiate their way out of it. And the, the other family were just so unforgiving and everything. She said, I found it really difficult to forgive them. And one day, my nine-year-old son Gabriel said, Mommy, we have to forgive them because that's what Jesus has told us to do. She says, and in that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit just broke something inside of me. And I learned to forgive them. And that was led by her nine-year-old son. And you know, now what she's doing now is she's leading the church. And that's a big deal. I mean, some of you women think you're women in a man's world. It's nothing to compare to what she's like, honestly. She's leading in a part of Albania, which is Europe, but you wouldn't think it is. As a woman, you don't speak. You're you're looking after the kids. You certainly don't lead a church. She's leading the church. She's also, they are visiting 40 families who are locked in their houses for fear because of the blood feud. She set up a national charity to try and bring to an end this incredibly barbaric uh, system of the blood feud. God's using her in absolutely amazing ways. And the two things that have helped her and are helping her are friendship and worship. I want you to show this picture. This is the friends that she brought to the conference with. This is... This is Tani's brother, who's also become a Christian. This is her sister. This is her sister-in-law. And the other guys are friends. And some of these guys have become Christians through Tani's life and through Tani's death. And, And when they came to the conference, they sat together. And I watched them a lot through the few days I was with them. And I thought, you guys have such a love for each other. And she says, and that's come through the fire of pain. You have such a love for one another. You have such an intensity. And I thought, wow, God is an amazing God, isn't he? That out of pain and conflict and loss can bring fantastic... Listen, she would rather have her husband back. Let me be really clear about that. She would rather have her husband back. He's her best friend, her mentor, her lover, all of that. But she hasn't got that. But what she has got is God. And God is somehow redeeming and restoring things in unbelievable ways. And on the plane on the way back... I mean, she just in the last session at the conference, she came and she asked me to pray for her. And I have to be honest... I found it really difficult to pray for her, because I just thought, I really want you to pray for me. Because like I look at you and I think, what am I? Do you know what I mean? And and as I prayed for her, I thought about Deborah. Remember the story of Deborah in the Old Testament? I thought, there's a woman that used influence to lead men in such an amazing way. And and I prayed for her. And um, I also said to her, I think this is so bright, I said, Eleanor, I want you to know, I would be led by you. You are such an amazing woman of God. I would be led by you. And she's proven that leadership is neither male nor female. That when the Spirit of God is on someone, and when their heart is in tune with God, God does incredible things. And on the way back on the plane, I wrote the story out uh, in my journal. And I'm going to read you a little bit from my journal. This is probably the only bit from my journal you're ever going to hear, alright? Let me just say that. And this is more eloquently written than I I normally uh, write in my journal. But I was writing it as a piece, really. And I just want to read you the end bit, and then we're going to pray. I said this, As I prayed for her... And as we later said goodbye, I thought how amazing is the human spirit and how redeeming is the spirit of God. Here is a woman who at one level had every right to be bitter, angry, disappointed with God and she does have her moments, but instead she's responded with a different spirit and perspective on life, her calling and on God. Here is genuinely a person with a heart after God's own heart. With all the pain she's experienced, the conflict and now loss, She is discovering and proving that God is her best friend. And I know that's a dramatic story. But I want you to hear that story because I want you to know that it's not just in the Bible, but it's in the story of real people's lives that with the pain of conflict and loss, they are experiencing the power of God. And I want to encourage you this morning. You may be experiencing conflict right now. You may have experienced or are experiencing loss. There are two amazing ships that God has provided for you, friendship and worship, where reflexively we go to God when there is nothing else to go to. Can we pray? In a moment, we're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the band to come back. and What we're going to do, I'm going to pray, but what we're going to do is... The band are going to teach you a new song. Very simple. You'll pick it up. Some of you will already know it. As the servers come, I want to ask the servers to come if you could, please, quickly. The servers are going to come and they're going to give you the bread and the juice. Let me just pray. Father God, I just want to pray this morning for just such a presence of your spirit. God, these issues are real. I don't want to be glib or trite or emotional in in the wrong way but God I want to pray Lord for every person Lord it's a choice about how we respond to life whether our heart gets bitter or whether our heart kind of gets better and moves on with you and God I know in my own life and in the life of Eleanor and other people that it's possible for both and I know that the choice is down to me of how I choose to respond to what life throws at me and God I want to pray this morning for every person in this place that we would just make a conscious decision right now, a conscious decision that we are going to pursue you. We are going to have a heart after God's own heart. In conflict, we want to keep our heart pure. In loss, we want to bring our loss to you. We want to bring the pain to you. We want to bring all that to you. God, we want to seek you through that. You are not our God just because you provide and make us feel better. You're our God. And when everything else is crumbling around, you're still our God. And God, we want to be a people after God's own heart. So Lord, as we eat and drink today, I just pray, God, that we would so engage with you. And Lord Jesus, by your spirit, that you would set some of us free. I pray for liberation today. I pray for, God, just a sense of letting go for some of us. Just the beginning of a breathing some stuff out and just of experiencing your presence in our hearts and in our lives and then as we worship Lord I pray that we would worship you we would find strength in the Lord our God Hallelujah. you know at the uh, 9 o'clock uh, Andy Hancock our youth leader was there and at the end he came to me and said yesterday he went to Liverpool to see his nan and it's a bit of a dementia f- theme I suppose with Claire's what she shared but his, his nan's in a care home and she doesn't recognise any of the family now so she doesn't recognise her daughter, didn't recognize Andy, didn't recognize anybody, she doesn't recognise Andy, she doesn't recognise anybody. But when we walked in, she was listening to a, a song of hymns and she was singing every single word of the hymns. She, says, oh, she didn't recognise Then she turned to my cousin and she said, God's good, you know. Now, there's medical people here and you're convi- there's all kinds of medical explanations. I choose to believe that there's something in that woman of an unconscious competence, of a reflex, do you know what I mean, that actually has been built over time that says, God is good. And she couldn't recognize any of the names of her family, but God is good. I wanna pray for you this morning. I wanna pray for you. And uh, for those of you that gotta leave this place and you're carrying pain and conflict and loss, I hope nothing that I've said has been glib or trite in any way. If, if it's come across like that, then I'm sorry. That's not my heart at all. I know it's tough to go through what you're going through, but I also know that God is God and He is good. He is good. David experienced it. My friend Ellen has experienced it. Many of you in this room could come up and give testimony to what I've been speaking about this morning. But some of you are going through it right now. And it's too early for you to do that. Hang on to God. I want to encourage you. Send a text. Let a friend know that you value their friendship. Will you do that today? as a response would you do that before you leave if you can just send it wouldn't it be great if just loads of texts and emails or messages were going out saying I really value you're a friend that helped me thank you for that do that but let's not forget that when everything else crumbles God doesn't God is with us we've got to reflexively find strength in the Lord our God so shall we pray as we finish the Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Be blessed today as you leave this place.